Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio. There's a conservative crusade happening in today's classrooms involving the opposition to the so-called critical race theory, or CRT. You've probably heard politicians arguing and news segments debating about this topic. There is a growing backlash against the teaching of critical race theory in our nation's schools. Moderate voters also voicing... Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, stands at the forefront. He introduced a bill to block CRT in classrooms. I think what you see now with the rise of this woke ideology is an attempt to really delegitimize our history and to delegitimize our institutions. No taxpayer dollars should be used to teach our kids to hate our country or to hate each other. With words like this, DeSantis is determined to stoke fears and to intensify the culture wars. And Florida has become ground zero for both. What are people like DeSantis so afraid of? It seems, at least to me, that some are afraid to confront our nation's ugly past and what that past might say about who we really are today. They want to put the past behind us and preserve our national innocence. Irony abounds because our innocence died a long time ago. We are witnessing yet another iteration of something called white backlash, a betrayal once again of the idea of a multiracial America. And folks like Florida State Senator Chevron Jones are pushing back. There is no claim here within the state of Florida that teachers are teaching children that white people are inherently racist or that white people should feel shame because of past injustices. Yes, we were not born then. Yes, you weren't a part of what happened then, but that does not preclude us from being able to sit and have the tough conversations of what happened. What we see happening in Florida is just one example of what's happening across the United States. Nine states Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Arizona, and North Dakota. Nine states so far have all passed legislation banning critical race theory from the classroom. DeSantis' comments remind me of Ted Cruz's troubling invocation of the Compromise of 1877 we heard about in Episode 1. He misuses history, wheels it to block and bludgeon racial progress. Here we have a conservative politician invoking one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous calls to action, only to stoke racial resentment and fears. Think about what MLK stood for. He said he didn't want people judged on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. You listen to some of these people nowadays, they don't talk about that. DeSantis and his allies would have us believe that telling the true story of America's racial past would pose a threat to white students' sense of self. He would prefer that we lie to ourselves and to our children, that we remain stuck right where we are. What DeSantis and others are doing isn't new. They like to speak of Dr. King as a hero because in doing so, it makes it sound like we as a nation already accomplished everything he asked of us. For people like DeSantis, MLK has become a symbol to publicly claim 
a false sense of progress and success. In this episode, we'll examine the period right after the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Freedom Struggle to understand how white betrayal impacted the nation. I'm Dr. Eddie S. Glaude, Jr., and this is History Is Us. Chapter 4, White Betrayal. When something comes along in our own timeline, as the old saying goes, you gotta pick a side. Many would never even consider themselves conservatives, but who are part of a system of inequality as well. If we know our history, it's not surprising that advances that we've had in our civic life on issues of race would be followed by the kind of vicious reactionary racist politics that we're seeing today. What we have learned over the first few episodes of this podcast is that our story is a complicated story. American history, especially when it comes to race, isn't a linear tale. It isn't a straightforward march to a more perfect union. Our journey is one of fits and starts, of one step forward, two steps backward. We are an imperfect and diverse nation, trying desperately to figure out how to live together. At every turn, when it seemed as if we were on the cusp of a new America, shorn of the insidious views of race, the ugliness of racism has reared its head and covered the land in darkness. We saw it with the killing of Reconstruction. Violence, law, and policy reinforced the belief and practice that white people mattered more than others in this country. We saw it with the rise of Jim Crow. And we saw black people fighting back in each moment, demanding that the country live up to the promises of democracy, only to be met with resentment and anger and a national refusal to fundamentally change. Demands for freedom and full citizenship were met with a resounding no. And with that, the battle was engaged. There are too many people in this country who see every civil rights gain through the lens of it. It's a zero-sum game. Every gain, every advancement for African Americans has to be coming at the loss to whites. This is Kevin Cruz. He's a professor of history and director of the Center for Collaborative History at Princeton University. He's the author of several important books, most notably White Flight, Atlanta and the Making of Modern Conservatism. What we've got are real distortions going on. Other people have pointed us out, but if your kid's getting taught critical race theory, congratulations on having a kid in law school. That's great. You should be really happy. Cruz, like many others, has a counter-argument to Governor Ron DeSantis. What DeSantis and his allies call CRT is not actually what scholars would describe as critical race theory. Critical race theory is a framework that uses ideas about race society, and the law to expose how American institutions, systems, and policies work in tandem to produce inequality. It was initially a set of ideas explored in law schools around the country, but is now foundational to a wide range of disciplines in the academy. But none of this is taught in primary schools. DeSantis and his supporters simply don't want black history in school curriculums. 
But your kid in grade school is not being taught this. And a book about Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King Jr., even if it has some white people in it that were mean to them, that's not teaching your child to feel bad about themselves. My kids read lots of books on both of those. And never once did they come to me saying, oh, dad, clearly I'm just like these Klansmen. I'm just like these segregationists. And I would say to anyone who's worried that their kids are going to read a story and identify with the villains, that's maybe a conversation you need to have with yourself and your spouse and your child because something has gone horribly wrong. Because most kids have empathy for anyone who is suffering. I'm German. When I read about Anne Frank, I didn't identify with Nazis just because I'm German descent. And so it baffles my mind that people are taking this away. We learn about the past because it happened. And this assumption that you'll be a better patriot if we iron out all the bad parts of history is ludicrous. You're not going to be a better patriot. You're just going to be less informed. Contrary to DeSantis's suggestion, history education is not meant to teach students to hate each other. Instead, it should shine a brighter light on the historical roots of injustice in this country. History is the good and the bad. And if you just have the good part, it's not history, it's propaganda. And it's going to do you a disservice and it's going to do your kids a disservice. Tell the truth. Professor Cruz also talks about how Dr. King is being misused in these debates around topics such as critical race theory. Remember how we challenged the standard story of the civil rights movement in episode three? How we questioned the way Dr. King has been used to confirm our national innocence? How we flattened the image of the movement and its leaders to hide the truth of who we are? Politicians like DeSantis cherry-pick portions of Dr. King's message to fit their aims. But the devil is in the details. A lot of these bans on CRT or the 1619 Project or whatever keep pointing to Martin Luther King Jr. The one in Texas said, you can't do all this radical stuff. You can't teach all this radical, crazy, cultural Marxism, whatever, whatever. But what we want you to do instead, read the I Have a Dream speech. Read Letter from a Birmingham Jail. You should absolutely read those because I guarantee you haven't if you thought those two things were opposed. And I have a dream speech. Everyone on the right seems to know that one sentence is a longer address. And then he talks about police brutality and voting rights and poverty and a lot of other things. It wasn't a feel-good speech. But the letter from Birmingham jail speaks directly to this issue of white moderates. That's who he's writing to. And I think the number one thing we can do, much as King did, was to disabuse them of the notion that they are being moderate, that they are moderating anything. Professor Cruz makes an important point. In stories like this one, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech and a letter from a Birmingham jail, white moderates pose as much of a threat to racial equality and justice as extremists. Inaction, complacency, and disregard contributed to the conditions that set the stage for the betrayal of the civil rights movement. This isn't a story of only loud racists. It is not merely the conservative right who weaponizes history to defend and uphold the status quo. Some of the problem can be attributed to inaction on the part of moderates, those who worry that we may go too far. This kind of no-label centrism where they're in the middle and they're not extremists on either side. No, your act of resistance, your silence, your complicity means that you are in effect supporting that status quo. I'd certainly say so. The tension between moderate complacency and loud extremists 
often plays out in our institutions and systems every day. Sometimes we witness this game of tug of war on a national scale. Think about presidential elections or whatever is going on in the Senate. Judge Jackson will coddle criminals and terrorists, and she will twist or ignore the law to reach the result that she wants. That's not what we need in a Supreme Court justice. That's why I will be voting. But often, it's even closer than we think. Sometimes, it's a feature of local politics. One place we see it most clearly is in schools. School boards are the current battleground. They're hoping to drive good people out of being on these school boards because they're just too annoying to deal with. People have to step up in all these roles. And these local roles are vitally important. So when something comes along in our own timeline, like Black Lives Matter or any of these other social justice movements, as the old saying goes, you got to pick a side. And just kind of washing your hands of it and standing back is supporting the status quo, which is what the people on the other side are hoping for. They're hoping for apathy. They're hoping for a lack of action. So white moderates who pride themselves on being moderates above all else, who put that word forth without articulating what it means, for whom moderation is just whatever the right says and whatever the left says, I'm going to place myself right in the middle, wherever that is. That's not moderation. That's a kind of knee-jerk positioning where you get to keep your hands clean. It's worse than the ideologues on either side because they at least believe in something. This is just a performative man in the middle thing they're doing, which, which is just mindless. No it's like the Joe Manchin Act. He keeps opposing this and that. West Virginia's Joe Manchin saying yesterday he opposes the president's Build Back Better bill and went on West Virginia Radio today to explain why. Chris Pallone has the latest. Bernie Sanders said, what are you for? Tell us what you want and we will give it to you in cinema. We'll give you whatever you want. Just tell us. You want job training? You want, you want They wouldn't say anything. Because they couldn't think of what they were for. All they were for was being in the middle, because I guess that's where the spotlight is, and that was it. Let's examine the historical roots of this type of moderation. Over the years, many white Americans have slowly abandoned the Democratic Party. The trend began in the 1960s and extended well into the 1980s. Although at one point, scholars suggested that this exodus was driven by economic interests, New research has shown that racial attitudes played a much larger role in the defection. A shift in the electorate began to take place. Southern whites abandoned the Democratic Party for the Republican Party in large numbers following the Democrats' support of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Indeed, the federal legislation that prohibited de jure segregation in public accommodations, and racial barriers to voting catalyzed a massive political party shift for white Americans in the middle of the 20th century. It's ironic, yes? The passage of civil rights legislation marked a watershed moment in American politics. Jim Crow was no more, but it also provides key insight into the phenomenon of white backlash. I think history has a kind of ebb and flow and Often what we call backlash is happening because progressives are making advances and an effort to confront our history is going to be uncomfortable. Here's Professor Matt Lassiter, the author F. Thurno Professor of History, Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Michigan. Professor Lassiter studies the political and social history of the United States in the 20th century. He's the author of The Silent Majority, Suburban Politics in the Sunbelt South. 
some people say, well, critical race theory is just a something conservatives fabricated, but critical race theory is an important way to understand American history. And it is changing the way that we teach history in the college and high school classrooms. And I'm not surprised that there's a backlash. Professor Lasseter calls for a better, more nuanced representation of historical figures and moments. Not such a far-fetched request, right? The reality is clear. Dr. King was an anti-imperialist, anti-war labor rights activist. That is just a historical fact. Young people need to learn that as they're coming through school to try to like keep them. King talked about imperialism and war and segregation and how it's all wrapped up together. And if we want our students to learn about Martin Luther King, and everybody now says that they do, some version of him, they should learn everything that he said. And they can handle it, for sure. But why are so many people against teaching the truth about him and the movement he was a part of? To answer that question, we will have to think a bit more about white backlash. It's a sort of betrayal, a deep-seated resentment towards the advancements of social movements meant to correct racial injustice. Think back to the Reconstruction period from Episode 1. After a few years of forward progress in the federal government's effort to incorporate 4 million newly emancipated African Americans into the body politic, the government turned its back on its responsibilities to those people. Many felt that Reconstruction's changes, such as the 15th Amendment, had come about too quickly. Many white Americans of that time understood the transformations in the country's political, legal, and social landscape as a threat to their sovereignty and to their rights. They felt victimized and attempted to reckon with the changes through violence. Think about it. The Memphis riots, the advent of the Ku Klux Klan, and the Black Codes. White backlash is an American phenomenon. The term backlash grew popular in the mid-1960s, with one newspaper even dubbing it the word of the year in American politics. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. noted that it was, quote, a new name for an old phenomenon that had always existed underneath and sometimes on the surface of American life. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. If we look carefully at our past we see that white backlash has insidious historical roots. Resistance to the black freedom struggle of the 1960s gave birth to a nagging resentment that has crept into our modern political system. As we move into the 60s and 70s and 80s and beyond, Southern society, like American society, becomes more segregated, not less segregated. It becomes more divided, not less divided. And it happens because when we talk about desegregation, we're only talking about a certain set of institutions. In the South, feelings of resentment and determined disregard for the new laws of the land flourished. As you can imagine, 
even with the major legislative and judicial gains of the civil rights movement, even after ending segregation, the hearts and minds of many white Southerners did not change overnight. In fact, white politicians, business people, and community organizations designed new systems to maintain the racial status quo. Segregation and racial discrimination were hardly a thing of the past, and people were creative in defending both. Professor Cruz takes us to Atlanta, Georgia, to think through the broader national feeling around multiracial democracy in America in the 1960s. It's a complicated reaction because the story the South tells itself, a story that comes into focus in Atlanta, that comes in throughout the entire South, is a celebratory one of, yes, we had an ugly past, but we wrestled with it. We had some Native heroes, many African-Americans, but some white heroes too, who forced us to go through this crucible and come out the other side, and we are now a new South. Right? We have learned our lessons. Right? And the story there is one in which segregation is vanquished, in which segregation is driven out of the public sphere and driven out of the hearts of individuals too. That's not the case. Exactly. Local governments were creative in their observance of the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Sure, it was decided that legal segregation was unconstitutional, but the court ordered only that states in segregation with, quote, all deliberate speed. How vague. So with all deliberate speed, segregation remained totally normal in everyday life. To be sure, in highly regulated and police spaces like schools and on public transit, integration became more normal. But those changes drove a particular white reaction, a form of backlash that ensured American life would remain, at least to some extent, divided by race. The national story of this was one in which we're talking about segregated schools. The first black kids walk up the stairs and go in that front door. Problem solved. The school is integrated. The defiance is over. We're done, right? The federal marshals made sure no harm came to the children or their parents as they entered and left school. There's a story that goes on within that school, where those children are often segregated or ostracized in a number of ways. It goes on in that community as white parents pull their kids out of the schools, as they pull their families out of those neighborhoods and move them either into private schools inside the cities or public schools in the lily white and still segregated suburbs. So this repeats itself across Atlanta in a variety of spheres and across the South. And so I think it comes into maybe the clearest focus if we look at, say, public places. And if you look at these things, they show that there had long been a sense on the part of whites in Atlanta, but again, across the South, across the nation, that these were their places. These spaces literally belonged to them by their birthright, by their taxes. They were invested in them. And when these spaces are desegregated, they abandon them. We often conflate the two terms, desegregation and integration. They don't mean the same thing. An important distinction indeed, an inheritance that continues to haunt. Desegregation are the laws keeping us apart coming down. Integration is us going together on our own free will. What becomes clear is that many white Americans believed that the country they knew and loved was lost. And black people were to blame. Resentment and grievance shadowed the ascent to the demand for desegregation. 
and the result from the legislative triumphs of the civil rights movement to the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 was an abandonment of public space and an argument that the balance of government had been distorted by efforts to force racial equality on hard-working white folk. A de facto exodus followed that split the country in two. What we see here is, yes, they're fine with desegregation. Not fine, but they accept it. They swallow their pride often. They don't resist you violently. Desegregation happens, but the integration doesn't happen because these whites absent themselves from these public spaces. They abandon them. And then more importantly, they say, well, if we're not using these public spaces, why should we pay for them? So there's white flight in a physical sense as they leave these spaces, but it's also white flight in a kind of civic sense where they abandon all sense of a a public good of a common ground. They retreat off into a world that's all their own. It's a, it's a privatization across a range of issues they're dealing with, and they really just want to be left alone. And so they become isolated. They retreated from this integrated space. So the South tells a story of, hey, isn't it great? We tore down those Jim Crow signs. We tore down these barriers that kept us apart. And yet there are a lot of new private barriers that are erected. Here's a story that tells us about a key example of these type of private barriers. It takes place in Georgia in 1962, when Mayor Ivan Allen Jr. ordered the construction of two major barricades crossing two Atlanta streets. These barriers were meant to discourage Atlanta's black population from buying homes in a neighboring all-white neighborhood. Black homeowners were viewed as intruders and their movement into formerly all-white spaces was seen as encroachment. What happens with this one is it becomes very clear when this wall gets built that it is not doing anything else. It is just there to divide the white neighborhood from the black neighborhood because whites were worried that blacks were, quote, encroaching on their all-white neighborhood there. And so they lobby the city to get this thing put up, and the city obliges them. Well, it blows up in their face. It becomes this running battle, almost literally, as... Whites are out defending it. At one point, the Klan is marching there with signs that say whites have rights too. Black residents come out in the cover of night and tear these structures down and throw them into the ditches. Back and forth, they're moving on this thing. The city re-erects the wall. I think local residents, if I remember right, wrap it in Christmas paper because it's near the holidays and they're delighted at this great present the city has given them. What about the news that a Negro real estate agent intends to move in behind the barricades at Peyton Road? We have to face. No person has been denied the right of purchase or the right of access or egress anywhere in Atlanta. And uh, it's just regrettable that anyone would contribute to what is already a difficult problem in an area in which there's a great deal of tension. So they're moving back and forth on this. And so it becomes this huge scandal because as the new mayor, Mayor Ivan Allen, learns from the old mayor, Bill Hartsfield, Hartsfield says, never make a mistake they can take a picture of. So Hartsville had done these kind of things all along, but he hadn't given quite literally concrete form in this wall. So it becomes a real black eye. But what the city notes, and they note this in passing, they say, well, we had 53 other neighborhoods that are undergoing the same sort of transition, and we're all focused on this one. Well, yeah, you're focused on this one because it had this really kind of staggering symbolism. But the fact that they're talking about 53 other neighborhoods that they're worried about, that they're monitoring, they can't officially keep apart, but they're doing everything they can to try to navigate is tied to what they call residential racial transition, shows how big of a concern this was for the city and for the people who lived in it, both white and black. This is the so-called Peyton Wall, which appears on Peyton Road in southwest Atlanta in 1962. 
And it's just a, it's, it's not a wall. It's really, it's a road barrier, like you see on the side of a highway, but it's there to keep the white neighborhood and the black neighborhood apart. And this is something that Atlanta had been doing on the sly through gentlemen's agreements and behind the scenes actions through the West side of Atlanta is done through in a way that the mayor is very clear. This is going to separate white and black parts of town, but they're usually a little coyer about this. The Peyton wall, this barrier would eventually be dubbed Atlanta's Berlin wall. All of this began when Dr. Clinton Warner, a black surgeon bought a home in a white neighborhood called Cascade Heights. He faced immediate backlash. White neighbors threatened to burn down his home. They dumped trash on his lawn, even harassed him at work. When asked about his decision to buy the home in Cascade Heights, Dr. Warner said, quote, I just needed a home and nobody else was there to buy. When the wall was built, all hell broke loose. The situation created a media firestorm for the city of Atlanta, with news of the wall making headlines across the country. Everyone knew why the wall was built. Real estate agent has purchased this home on the white side of Atlanta's barricade. The house is about two blocks from a street blockade labeled Atlanta's Berlin Wall, which separates a Negro neighborhood from an area of well-to-do white homeowners. The white homeowner, R.A. Bright, said the Negro agent told him that other Negroes were buying in. The Negro, C.C. Thornton, denies this. News over the wall thrust the city into the national spotlight and cast shame on the mayor, who had won his election thanks in large part to the black vote. His pro-integration platform appeared to be a ruse. What is the legal justification for putting up such barriers? I don't know what the legal justification is. What Mayor Allen thought was a passive, quick fix to the tensions caused by desegregation mandates proved to be one of the most powerful and maddening symbols of the nation's ongoing resistance to the gains of the civil rights movement. In response to the barricade, community activists began to speak out. Can you imagine Atlanta's Berlin Wall? This issue points up the need for a permanent official agency created by the mayor and the board of aldermen to deal with the problems of social change and intergroup relations. Erecting a wall to prevent integration in a city otherwise celebrated for its image of racial harmony is the perfect example of the contradiction at the heart of our national story. Roadblocks, both physical and metaphorical, were continuously engineered to stand in the way of substantive progress. Atlanta's Berlin Wall remained in place for just 72 days. By the late 1960s, the Cascade Heights neighborhood in Georgia had become a place for well-off African Americans. White residents simply left the neighborhood. White flight transformed the residential area, and the incident was widely used as evidence of Atlanta's awful race problem. This pattern of progress and retrenchment was not just a Southern affair. Georgia, though illustrative, was hardly exceptional. In January 1969, Richard Nixon began his presidential term. I, Richard Bilhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States 
of President of the United States. And as the 1970s approached, desegregation remained for the most part an unfulfilled aspiration throughout most of the country. A serious look at our past shows us that all too often many white Americans have mourned moments of progressive reform, viewing signs of change as an indication of their loss. And this is not just in the South. It is a national sentiment. Think, for example, of that now emblematic scene of the first day of school in Boston, Massachusetts, after the June 1974 ruling that de facto school segregation discriminated against African-American students. The judge ordered the busing of African-American students into schools that were basically all white. Black students were crammed into buses headed to white schools. Along the route, white protesters hurled bricks and bottles, eggs and other objects at the bus. Imagine, these were children. Police officers donned combat gear to quell the enraged mob, but to no avail. By October, the National Guard was deployed to enforce the federal desegregation order. This was not Birmingham, Alabama, or Jackson, Mississippi. This was the North. Today, the people who gathered on City Hall Plaza were angry. Their battle against busing has been lost. It was perhaps their last unified stand, the last huge expression of defiance. As in the past, the politicians... The massive protest captured on film and on camera symbolized national resistance to desegregation orders. Let us go to our neighborhoods where our kids are safe. We want our kids safe. Or take another example, the New York hard hat riot. The rally had a few brief moments of violence, but there was no major trouble. One young man was attacked after allegedly calling the workers warmongers and shouting obscenities at them. A massive demonstration in lower Manhattan set off legions of hard hats whose rage had been building for years. It was never planned to explode, but it did explode. In May 1970, just a few days after the Ohio National Guard shot and killed four anti-Vietnam War student protesters at Kent State University. A group of protesters in New York gathered at the United Nations. The protesters, most of whom were students from City College, were met with resistance and clashed with a small group of construction workers who claimed to be Vietnam War veterans. Days later, when the protesters reconvened at New York's historical Federal Hall, they encountered a group of nearly 200 construction workers staging a counter-protest. Reports say they chanted, love it or leave it, in all the way USA, before charging at the anti-war student protesters, injuring about 70 of them. The construction workers sang the Star Spangled Banner as they processed through the streets. They were the true patriots. When they arrived at City Hall, they demanded that New York Mayor John Lindsay raise all flags from half-mast to full-mast. Their request was fulfilled. Those were expressions of the resistance of working-class white Americans in particular to meaningful racial integration. 
and Nixon celebrated the hard hat riots when they beat up the anti-war protesters in New York City. And he was trying to win these voters for these largely Democratic constituencies for the Republican Party. White House, Nixon accepted a hard hat as a gift, an unmistakable symbol to his base. Campaigning for Republican candidates. The stark image of men in hard hats clashing with long-haired hippies remains an image drawn into our national epic with indelible ink. It represented the reality of a nation divided. On the one hand, blue-collar pro-Nixon nationalists crusaded in defense of the Vietnam War, and on the other, privileged, highly educated hippies called for U.S. withdrawal and an end to the war. Class struggle was on full display. It's not just the people screaming in Little Rock about school integration or the people beating up the protesters and screaming about integration in Boston. It's also the kind of the more affluent white voters who don't have to be on the front lines of racial change. And I'm interested in those people too, who many would never even consider themselves conservatives and couldn't imagine behaving like that, but who are part of a system of inequality as well. Think back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s message in a letter from a Birmingham jail. He lambasted white moderates. These are the folks who imagine themselves apart from America's race problem. They are not the loud racist, but their inaction implicates them too. I see something similar when I think about the lessons of January 6th. There are those who wouldn't dare attack the Capitol, but they might hold similar views to those who did. Just to take a step back even further, I think we already know the one-line history of Donald Trump's election in 2016, and that is that the nation's first African-American president was followed in office by the man who, more than any other person, did more to try to assert the racist lie that he wasn't a legitimate citizen. This is Joseph Crispino, the Jimmy Carter Professor of History at Emory University. Professor Crispino specializes in the political and cultural history of the 20th century United States particularly the post-Reconstruction South. He is the author of multiple books, including In Search of Another Country, Mississippi, and the Conservative Counter-Revolution. What we've seen throughout American history is that periods of racial progress are oftentimes almost like clockwork, followed by periods of great racist reaction. We saw that in the Reconstruction period. We saw it certainly in the 1960s. We saw it even in the post-World War II period which we forget offered a brief period of progressive reform in the Deep South. I had many friends who said this country would never elect a black man president. And it was a remarkable moment. But it's not surprising, if we know our history, it's not surprising that that historic presidency and other advances that we've had in our civic life on issues of race would be followed by the kind of vicious, reactionary, racist politics that we're seeing today. As a native Southerner, Mississippi, I thought this was behind us. I could never have anticipated that there would be people marching with torches in Charlottesville, Virginia, and that people would be ransacking the Capitol with the Confederate flag. One people, one nation, and immigration! One people, one nation, and immigration! But this element of Trumpism 
which you can trace back to George Wallace, that has always been really a central part of the mix. And I think the dilemma of the Republican Party since 1964 has been how to deal with that element. To what degree is that element of the party and that element of conservatism going to drive the bus? George Wallace remains one of the most infamous segregationists in American history. You know, we heard his voice in the previous episode yelling, And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. He served as the governor of Alabama for four terms and also ran for the presidency of the United States four times. But he actually started out his political journey as a moderate when he came to segregation. He was an economic populist, a protege of Big Jim Folsom, who you know, was from North Alabama and was one of these progressive figures in deep South politics in the post-World War II period who got rid of the poll tax, who talked about working people in Alabama taking on entrenched interest. When Wallace ran for governor in 1958 as a moderate, his opponent, Attorney General John Patterson, beat him in a landslide. Patterson touted his unflinching belief in segregation, garnering the support of the Ku Klux Klan. John Patterson was a nobody in Alabama politics. His daddy had been somebody. His daddy had been a candidate for attorney general who was murdered by mob interest in Phoenix City, Alabama. Young John runs in his stead, wins attorney general. And then when he runs for governor in 1958, he runs with the support of the Ku Klux Klan and the White Citizens Councils. And in the runoff election in 1958, George Wallace goes around and talks to Alabama voters and says, are you really going to vote for my opponent? This is a man who's been endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan, and he won't renounce them. Is that the kind of man you're going to vote for? And a majority of Alabamans, white Alabamans in 1958 said, yep, that's our guy. That's who we're going to vote for. George Wallace learned from this moment. He would never make that mistake again. He said, and please excuse the language, I was out-nickered. I will never be out-nickered again. From then on, Wallace adjusted his strategy, famously championing racist policies. He became the poster child for the segregationist cause. George Wallace's example reveals something about how racism yields big returns for politicians. One of the things that was striking about, say, building the Republican Party in a region like the South in the 1950s and 60s is it was really hard to do because a lot of the Republicans that were emerging in the Republican Party operations in Mississippi and Georgia and other Southern states, these were kind of white-collar, college education business folks who had moved to the region. They were good government folks who believed that the South, if it was going to progress, needed a two-party system. That's small d democratic politics at work. You don't want a democratic party that controls politics in the state of Georgia that's run by the courthouse gang in South Georgia. You want a viable two-party system. The problem is that it was super hard for those guys to get elected. They didn't have a constituency. And so they had to win kind of working class white voters who were traditionally democratic voters. And so that's why you see kind of a hallmark moment kind of in modern Republican and modern conservative history is when Ronald Reagan went to the Neshoba County Fair in 1980. By the 1980s, 
presidential campaigns had new hallmarks and norms. Speeches at state fairs had grown popular. And in 1980, presidential candidate Ronald Reagan took to the stage at the Neshoba County Fair in central Mississippi. He delivered a stump speech of sorts. In that speech, Reagan gave new life to a massive majority Republican crowd by making appeals to states' rights. He insisted that the balance of American government was distorted and assured his audience that he believed in restoring power to state and local governments. What factored into Reagan's decision to invoke the language of states' rights, a popular rallying cry for slaveholders during the drama of the Civil War? Well, he knew that he could appeal to racial animus, to grievance and resentment, to galvanize his voting base. He makes that decision. And of course, you know, a lot of people want to make maybe more than that than it is, but it is, it's not that that was the moment, but it's a really revealing moment because you go into the archives of the Republican Party in Mississippi. Why does Reagan need to go to Neshoba County in 1980 when he's running against a Southerner? You know, he's running against Jimmy Carter. If you look in the archives, the political operatives in the Republican Party say he needs to go there to win the George Wallace inclined voters. Those are the white working class voters that a Republican candidate, if they're going to take Mississippi, has to win. The Wallace voter, the Trump voter now, when you're doing the electoral calculus, you're a modern conservative politician, and you're trying to take this movement from beyond just kind of the halls of academia and the University of Chicago, and you're trying to get it actually into operative politics, you're going to need that racist reactionary vote. And that has been true for much of the history of our modern politics. And what we're seeing now is that element of the conservative movement is driving the bus. And that's why you have all of these conservatives who have been lifelong conservatives who are in agony because the movement has left them. And they were part of a movement that was always broad and diverse, but it's been given over now to Trumpism in a way that you know we haven't seen in a long time. As a native Southerner, someone who's from there and still lives there, and we still have a lot of problems in this region that we need to deal with. But the way in which both people at the time in the 1950s and 60s see the South as the center of the nation's problems, you know, it blinds us to the way in which these are national problems. It blinds us to the fact that when George Wallace went to Wisconsin in 1964, when he was running the Democratic presidential primaries, he was winning plenty of votes in Wisconsin and Indiana and in Maryland. And he found welcome constituencies there. And so, you know, this is not just a regional problem and it's not just a Southern issue. It's a national problem. And of course, we know that now. We know that because of the way in which Donald Trump and his supporters are seen throughout the country. So it's not a Southern issue. Certainly, it is wrapped up in a deep history that traces back to slavery, to civil war, and to those foundational issues. But it is much broader part of our national life. I've said it over and over again. Our history haunts. Here we are, once again, on the precipice of fundamental change in this country. And what do we face? 
resistance to that change. An assault on voting rights, on the rights of the LGBTQ plus community, an attack on the rights of women to control their bodies, an assault on what we teach and the stories we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. All too often, the South is made to bear the burden of our national sins. I'm reminded of something Malcolm X said, as long as you're south of the Canadian border, you're in the South. The problem is not with the South alone. The problem is in us. Here's Professor Cruz again. So now we're seeing an effort to unravel the changes brought by the Voting Rights Act, by the longer struggle before that. Again, the two decades in Atlanta where African-Americans are fighting tooth and nail to, to get voting rights. And so what we're seeing is a challenge to that white assumption that this place belongs to us. As if as a white guy, I'm fine sharing a lot of things, and I'm struck by how much of a minority view that tends to be today. There are too many people in this country who see every civil rights gain through the lens of it. It's a zero-sum game. Every gain, every advancement for African-Americans has to be coming at the loss to whites. Ours is a complicated story. We've not always been on the road to a more perfect union. Tragedy and trauma joined with joy and triumph in the historical pages of this fragile experiment. Accounts of heroes and villains are too simplistic. It seems that we are constantly folding back on ourselves, wash, rinse, and repeat. I think a lot of historians have this reaction. We're just tired because this is an old fight. This is a fight that's gone on before I was born. I mean, it's, it's just the same old thing. These fights over textbooks, the Scopes Monkey Trial in the 20s, the fights over civil rights in the 50s, the fights over multiculturalism in the 70s, the fights over quote-unquote political correct history in the 90s, the fights over the Enola Gay in the 90s, on and on. We have this every 20 years or so. And it's just, it's a tiring hiring debate, but it goes to the fact that I think we fight over history because it goes to talking about who we are as a people. And there's a certain way in which discussion of what did happen in the past sets the stage for what could happen in the future. It should be clear by now that the current state of our politics and of modern conservatism is a much more complicated affair than at first blush. And there is even more to the story. But my aim here has been simple. Our current crisis isn't an accident of history. It is a consequence of the choices we have made and continue to make. Choices rooted in our refusal to finally grow up when it comes to race matters. Here's Matt Lassiter again. Joe Biden is a great example. It's not just the crime war and the drug war. Joe Biden was opposed to busing in Delaware to integrate the city of Wilmington and its suburbs. Do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America? Then? No. Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I opposed. Well, I there did was not a failure of- Once the busing issue came out of the South to states like Delaware, liberal Democrats or moderate Democrats like Joe Biden said, ah, enough is enough. And so the argument I would make is that the basic patterns of racial inequality 
and class inequality that are embedded in the policies that have created our metropolitan region, pretty much the same all over the country. And that hostility toward really breaking those down is not just a Republican thing or a conservative thing. It's more broad than that. I mean, think about... This is a national story. And there's an echo or repetition here. Remember, we saw Republican congressmen and senators during Reconstruction supporting the 13th Amendment, but finding the 15th Amendment wholly unconscionable. They hated slavery, but rejected the idea of black citizenship. Often used the example of Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass with my students. You know, it's an anti-slavery poem of sorts in the beginning. But in the last published edition of the poem, around 1881-1882, Whitman has redacted all of the anti-slavery sentiment because he did not believe black folks should be full citizens. Civically, he thought we were akin to baboons. You know, you talk about the 15th Amendment. One of the biggest tragedies of our recent politics is the way that the Supreme Court has undercut enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. And the argument, the progressive argument often is, we need to get the Southern states back under the oversight of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. And what I would say is, we need every state under the oversight of the Justice Department. Like when Wisconsin is doing this, it's happening badly right now in Alabama and North Carolina. It's really like racist policymaking to disfranchise black voters, but other states and you know try to do that as well. And Republican legislators in Pennsylvania and Michigan and elsewhere are just overriding the majority of the voters through these extreme gerrymandering tactics. And they saw Martin Luther King's speech in 1963 at the March on Washington, and nobody taught most of them in their high schools that King gave the same speech in Detroit in 1963 at the Walk for Freedom with 100,000 people walking down Woodward Avenue, one of the largest civil rights protests in American history, and talked about housing and jobs and schools and segregation in the North as well. This refusal to acknowledge the presence of the past in our current crisis allows the past to move us about. The myth of Southern exceptionalism sustains a myth of American exceptionalism. It allows the United States to be a racially innocent nation with a regional problem, as opposed to coming to terms with the fact that racism and white supremacy, racial power, racial capitalism shaped every part of our country throughout our history. There's no question that the conservative movement and the Republican Party has capitalized on a backlash to the civil rights movement. We are losing our footing as the dark clouds gather above our heads. But as the storms grow stronger, soon we will not be able to see a vision of a truly multiracial America. You can't sit on the sidelines and bitch and moan and just go about your day and assume everything's going to be fine. You got to be involved. And it's not just voting every four years, which for some people is incredibly involved, or voting every two years, hey, you're great. Voting in the local elections, you got to get involved in campaigns. It doesn't bend that way on its own. You know, this isn't some kind of natural process that just happens. 
it requires people to get involved, to get engaged. If we look for a silver lining from the Trump years, my main one has always been, it reminded a lot of people that democracy is not a spectator sport. Next time on History Is Us, we turn our attention to the historical election of Barack Obama, our nation's first black president, and the unique American madness that followed in its wake. It's easy to forget the context within which Obama ascended into the presidency. The whole promise of Barack Obama was that he's going to make us feel optimistic about America and optimistic about race. I don't think that he was under the impression that he was going to take the country into some post-racial nirvana or anything like that. History Is Us is a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham studio. It is executive produced by Chris Corcoran and John Meacham, narrated by me, Dr. Eddie Esglaw Jr., and written by Shelby Sinclair and me, directed by Paige Heinsohn. Production assistance by Terrence Malingar. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz. Production and creative support by Lloyd Lockridge, Chris Basil, David Weisbord, Nikki Kovic, and Ian Mutt. Artwork is by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schiff. Research by Shelby Sinclair and additional assistance from Dion Worthy and Elio Leo. Thank you for listening to Chapter 4 of History Is Us a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals, and John Meacham Studio. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, and follow it on your favorite listening platform so others can find and enjoy it as well. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.